Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin. I'm a human rights practitioner and currently a visiting scholar at Yale Law School and the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor David Forsyth about his new book, The Politics of International Human Rights, published just a few months ago by Edward Elger in its uh, excellent advanced introduction series. The Politics of International Human Rights is really an exquisitely crafted gem of a little volume that deals with the place of human rights in international relations, focusing on the political and diplomatic process rather than just on law and institutions. It's a true privilege to interview David today. He's of course the general editor of the Encyclopedia of Human Rights published by Oxford University Press in 2009. But David is perhaps best known for being the author of the very first textbook on human rights and international relations back in the early 1980s with the volume Human Rights in World Politics which I remember pretty much everybody working in the field was reading, uh, from lefty domestic activists in Asia to UN officials in New York. I remember it had this very distinctive and quite appealing cover with big red letters and a kind of metal mesh over the jacket. It was very striking. Um, David Forsyth is University Professor Emeritus and Charles J. Mach Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. He has held the Fulbright Distinguished Research Chair of Human Rights and International Studies at the Danish Institute of International Studies in Copenhagen. He has also been on staff for the United Nations University in Tokyo and has been a consultant to both the UN Office of the High Commissioner of Refugees and the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your nice opening remarks. David, I wonder if I could start by asking you a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, where you went to university, and when your interest uh, for um, politics and and human rights uh, started. Yes, I'd be glad to do that. It's... uh... Of course, interesting to me, I'm not sure how much uh, it will be of interest to others. I grew up in a very uh, parochial American family, uh, mostly in the state of Virginia. They were not uh, internationally oriented at all. We did not do international travel when I was growing up. I went off for my undergraduate studies to Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And after that, I did both my master's and my doctoral work at Princeton University in New Jersey, 
So my background is sort of American East Coast, uh, moderate South to Northeast. Uh, way back then, it seemed like a different world. If one was interested in politics, political science, uh, history, there were no human rights courses at university level, much less high school or whatever. Um, if one was interested in human rights, perhaps there was something in the philosophy department at some university, a conceptual philosophical treatment of the concept of personal rights. I suppose in some law schools uh, back in the 1960s or 70s, uh, say Louis Hinken at Columbia University, one could get a, a course on the law of human rights. But in the social sciences, in the humanities like history, uh, there weren't any courses. And I myself, uh, in my student years, never had a course in international human rights. They did not exist. I came out of graduate school interested in the United Nations and mediation, mediation of conflict through UN mediators, conciliation commissions, et cetera, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, I gravitated from UN mediation to an interest in uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross as a humanitarian intermediary, did not do political mediation, but uh, was a kind of third party in conflict situations. Those were my early interests. And then in the 1970s, things happened which uh, caused me to pick up and emphasize the subject of human rights. Um, you know, between the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 and other events in 1948, uh, genocide treaty approved, open for signature, Nuremberg trials from the 1940s until the 1970s, you know, human rights was kind of on the back burner in state foreign policies. It was the classic Cold War. The emphasis was on security issues, political economy, that sort of thing. But then in the 1970s, you had the, in the United States, you had the, the civil rights movement, which sometimes overlapped with the rhetoric of human rights. And you had the congressional Democrats uh, using the language of human rights to attack the Republicans over Vietnam. Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, congressional Democrats, particularly in the House, using the language of human rights uh, to try to score partisan points against uh, the Republican administration. And along came Jimmy Carter, who actually was sort of playing catch up politics to the congressional Democrats. Jimmy Carter in the politics of the state of Georgia uh, was not known for attention to human rights. He was not a leading figure in the civil rights movement in Georgia. He was not regarded as a a liberal champion of civil rights and human rights in his uh, political record in Georgia. And in fact, some people around Martin Luther King 
like Andrew Young, they did not think that highly of Jimmy Carter because in the struggle for civil rights in the American South, in the state of Georgia, uh, Jimmy Carter was not very prominent. But once he decided to run for president, once he saw that the congressional Democrats were talking a lot about human rights, then as we all know, he picked up the theme he elevated attention to at least the rhetoric of human rights. He promised to make human rights the, the center, the soul of his foreign policy. And needless to say, all of this caught my attention. And these events in the 1970s helped propel me into trying to fill the gap in the social sciences in the US and I would say also in the UK with more studies about human rights, more serious attention to human rights. I was already interested in international humanitarian law or the laws of war or what happens to persons in a war zone because I was already in Geneva doing work with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And in the 70s, I was, even though I was an American, I was accompanying some all Swiss ICRC field missions, and I was seeing what they were doing to try to protect people, uh, to track down missing persons, to visit, to detain persons in conflict situations. I was already uh, rather deeply involved in all of that. So in addition to my interest in humanitarian law and organization on a global basis, because of events in the 1970s, I got much more interested in human rights. And I found that there wasn't a whole lot of published material from a political point of view, from a policy point of view. Uh, there were studies in law, but I wanted to do something more broadly and to address human rights in terms of public policy uh, foreign policy, international policy, uh, which did not, of course, rule out a, a legal aspect, a legal dimension of my approach was coming from training in political science with some attention to law, but not trying to duplicate what the lawyers were already doing. So uh, perhaps that's more than you wanted, but uh, that's uh, my personal background, my personal education and some of the main reasons why I got interested in the politics of human rights. And then I discovered that it was a big black hole in terms of social science studies, policy studies, and I tried to fill that gap. Well, you certainly did a lot to fill, <laughs> to fill that gap. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the first chapter of this um, fairly slim volume. Uh, this is really a, a, a very short and uh, condensed um, uh, volume about the, the, the politics of international human rights. The first chapter um, uh, titled Politics and Human Rights um, very much reflects uh, this, this approach that you have, which is to uh, look at uh, human rights as uh, as public policy, as something that is constructed by uh, diplomats and politicians in the international uh, sphere, 
um, and that you're much less interested in sort of finding the um, um, philosophical universal uh, principle that would legitimate and drive the whole um, enterprise. Um, and certainly from a practitioner point of view, um, this is very much the case. Um, human rights in the world is, is essentially a political enterprise and its outcome very much shaped by the power relations between mostly nation states, um, a little bit international organization and corporates, um, certain um, uh, armed groups and so on. But um, this is something that is uh, very much um, also at the core of your book in explaining the discrepancies between the letter of the law uh, human rights law, the standards, um, the lofty ideals that are put in the law, and and the gap in in implementation and realization. I think you write that this is a, essentially human rights are a liberal enterprise in a in a brutally realistic uh, uh, world. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you're uh, not so interested in in the in what really um, seems to attract so much attention and debates and so much ink is, is uh, poured on, on these issues of whether human rights are truly universal and whether they're imperialistic and uh, whether they only reflect uh, Western values. And that, that has never, you, you, you don't seem to be giving a lot of, uh, of time and attention to uh, this dimension of the, of the issue. Well, I think those all of those uh, approaches to understanding human rights are important. I wouldn't say I'm uh, disinterested, but in the last analysis, um, what happens to human rights in the making of human rights and in the application of human rights um, depends on power when you write, get, get right down to it depends on power, uh, and I don't just mean hard power, coercive power, I also mean soft power, diplomatic power. Uh, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because uh, certain ideas prevailed, were accepted. Uh, uh, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in part because the United States and others lobbied uh, strongly for it. There were lots of influences I'm not suggesting this was a reflection of American imperialism. I think we all know that there were lots of inputs into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, uh, Caribbean, uh, French, uh, uh, UN Secretary of People like uh, John Humphrey. But with all of these developments, they are a reflection of uh, diplomatic influence, in some cases, uh, rather strong arm twisting. And then, of course, when you get to this uh, well-known gap between, on the one hand, uh, the development of human rights norms, and on the other hand, applying those norms in concrete situations, there, of course, the analysis of power uh, is extremely relevant. And eventually, we can talk about Ukraine and, and some other concrete situations. 
I am reminded of the old story um, told, I suppose, by some diplomat about how when you read through the UN Charter and you read about human rights and all the other objectives that are supposed to be pursued and implemented, uh, we really should have an amendment to the UN Charter, so the story goes. And that amendment should say something like, nothing in the preceding words should lead us to believe that power is irrelevant. So we have a lot of nice sounding statements in international relations. You know, we have the Atlantic Charter, we have the UN Charter, we have the Universal Declaration, we have all kinds of resolutions coming out of the General Assembly. But then if we ask, uh, are these things taken seriously? Do these words, do these resolutions, do these documents affect behavior, change behavior, make a difference in grassroots politics, day-to-day -day living? And if we find a problem there or a gap there or deficiencies there, we, we really do have to look at power structures. And I would say two things in general about what you rightly call this slim volume. It was not because I didn't have other ideas, but because this is what the publisher wanted. He wanted a very short, slim volume, which it is. You describe it accurately. Um, I would say two things. The, the, the book is really a study on the old question of human agency versus the context or environment in the broadest sense. Can individuals make a difference? And can they make a difference in the global context that is, I think, accurately described as a state system of world affairs, a system of sovereign territorial states without world government, which means that states almost always have two priorities in their foreign policies, neither of which is human rights. And that is security and the economics to pay for the security policies. Because without world government and without other arrangements that guarantee security, uh, states can disappear. Maybe Ukraine is gonna disappear. I don't think so, but maybe. Maybe the Russian leadership wants to make the state of Ukraine disappear. Uh, at times in history, Poland has come and gone. It has been there. It has disappeared. Um, why do the Kurdish peoples in the Middle East not have a state? Well, they haven't had the power to get one. Why do the Palestinians not have a state? Well, they do not have the power to get one. In the state system of international relations, you're never very far away from concerns about power, sometimes um, existential power. Do you exist as a national people? Do you not exist as a national people? You have to have power to get that status and protect that status. And for your security policies, you have to find a way to pay for them, which, of course, the Russians are finding out now. They're going to have to find a way to pay for what they want to do. So th those, those tend to be the priorities in a very harsh, sometimes brutal state system of international relations. And there's no point in pretending that those factors don't exist. So then it becomes a question, can well-meaning individuals make a, uh, make a difference 
in that harsh global environment characterized by insecure national elites. And, and what the book tries to say is, okay, that's a big mountain to climb, but there has been some progress and some people have made a difference. Uh, we have the notion of genocide because of uh, Lemkin, because of Raphael Lemkin. Uh, we have the legal concept of crimes against humanity because of Hirsch Lauterpacht and his efforts. Uh, we have examples from Nelson Mandela to Raoul Wallenberg. We have Desmond Tutu. Uh, we have all sorts of individuals that have made a difference, despite a harsh environment, in doing something for human rights and making the world a better place in terms of human rights. It can be done. It's a tall mountain to climb. And for every progress you can document, there are still remaining problems that need to be addressed. And so I would say that's the, that's the um, framework of the book. That's the basic thinking that goes into what I was trying to do. And uh, I maybe will offend some people, but you don't have to read John Locke to do what I'm doing. You, it probably helps to read Marx, but you, you don't have to read Karl Marx or Montesquieu, or you can draw some interesting ideas from these people. I'm not suggesting they're irrelevant to all of this going on, but you can say a lot about internationally recognized human rights um, with an orientation to policy and power without replaying all the philosophical debates that have been going on. Now, I would also add, I think that what happened, say, particularly in the American Revolution and trying to develop a democratic polity based on at least some personal rights is that Jefferson and Franklin and Hamilton and Madison, they had read the philosophers. They had read the European philosophers. They did look at monarchy in Europe and they tried to devise ideas to move away from the British and the French and the other monarchs. And they used their reading of history and they used their reading of philosophy to come up with the rights of man, human rights, a policy that at least to some extent, radical for its time, based rule not on heredity, but on conceptions of fundamental rights, even if their view was incomplete with regard to African-Americans, women, Indians, we all know the story, but nevertheless, they did read the philosophers, they did read history, and that went into their thinking about the political system they wanted to construct. But in the last analysis, they had to have the power to do it. They had to have the power to turn the Declaration of Independence into something uh, more concrete by way of a, a constitution. And they had to get the support of the French to do it. <laughs> which is an interesting story where they got the support of the French monarchy uh, in behalf of the American democracy, emerging democracy. 
Um, anything to hurt the British. Anything to hurt the British, yes. But Franklin understood that. Jefferson understood that. They understood that. And so here you have shrewd diplomacy. Here you have exercise of power in order to make human rights a reality, let's say in 1789, 1787 in the United States. Uh, power was not irrelevant <laughs> to that project. Right, and, and, and I think that um, what you just said really conveys the, um, a, a critical aspect of this, of this volume, which is that you give an overview of the, of the system at play, this uh, interface between human rights and international relations, but you also and perhaps because the, 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 the book is very concise, you have to sort of fall on particular um, positions about where, where, where you stand and how you read um, uh, the situation. And, and, and I think that's a, a, a value of the book because the book is um, extraordinarily clear and, I, and, 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 and clear. But I want to ask you one question in relation to power. Um, you described what is the reality of the world as a, a, a world of nation states, primarily self-interested, selfish, that put security and economic interest at the top. But you also, in the book, uh, you don't subscribe to a realistic, to a realist um, um, uh, view of international relations. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about your reservations towards a full uh, acceptance of the of the uh, realist um, viewpoint? Yes, well, it depends, I guess, on uh, which version of realism we are talking about, <laughs> because there's more than one. Uh, sometimes I think of myself as maybe a uh, a liberal realist or. Um, a realist who nevertheless uh, sees some opportunities for liberal advance, uh, because I do see human rights as part of uh, uh, liberalism, classical liberalism. I'm not talking here about Democrats versus Republicans or or left-right political parties. I'm talking about classical liberalism, which emphasized political freedom and economic freedom, both, which is a, um, a story in itself as to how those two can be made uh, compatible, if they can. Um, I would, I, I would uh, use a concrete example to sort of explain my thinking about all of this. And I will use uh, international criminal justice as, as an example of this. So, after the Cold War, there was a kind of a renaissance in uh, holding individuals accountable for atrocities. And I'm sure you know the story, and uh, I guess a number of our listeners um, know the story of how we got the International Cr Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia and some of the people that authorized, carried out atrocities in the Bosnian War of the early 1990s were made to answer in court. Uh, Milosevic, uh, Mladic, Karadish. And we also had Rwanda, 
and maybe as uh, as a reaction to not doing enough during the Rwanda genocide, we got another international criminal court holding people responsible for uh, authorizing and, and organizing the Rwandan genocide. And we finally got the International Criminal Court. All of these um, examples have a, a whole story to themselves. And all of that represented a certain progress. And one can complement a number of foreign policies, uh, American foreign policy, French foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy, the activities of a lot of non-governmental organizations in uh, struggling to create and make effective these and other courts, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, et cetera. Not so much success in Lebanon, but a court there as well. So it was progress, uh, difficulties, um, some achievements. Some people are still in jail now for having organized these atrocities. And yet now, what does that mean for Ukraine? We see evidence of war crimes. The reports are beginning to be established by different international organizations about war crimes being committed. But if you want to do something about uh, uh, war crimes that are presumably being committed in the war in Ukraine, power comes into play. Uh, one has to get physical custody of those responsible. Um, one has to get hold of uh, documentary evidence or irrefutable circumstantial evidence. It's a big problem. So there can be progress in holding individuals accountable for violations of the laws of war, or if you want, gross violations of human rights and armed conflict. But uh, now, in the current uh, international armed conflict involving Russia and Ukraine. It is very difficult to move forward on this issue. Uh, if you go back to the Nuremberg trials after 1945, um, it took the defeat of one of the parties. The reason we were able to put about two dozen Germans on trial is that first we had won the war. And while Hitler had already committed suicide, we were able to capture and hold accountable other German leaders. And they were kind enough to leave a vast documentary record uh, of what they had done in many cases. But absent winning the war, it was impossible to proceed to a Nuremberg situation. One first has to exercise sufficient hard power to win the war get possession of the defendants, get possession of evidence that will stand up in court. And in all of this, uh, power is extremely relevant. And there are lots and lots of difficulties of trying to make effective the law about protecting non-combatants in armed conflict. It's a very good norm. We have very good laws. Some human rights laws apply. Some of the laws of wars apply. Very good norms. Really a lot of difficulty in translating those norms about protecting people in war into concrete progressive developments. And power is very much relevant to all of it.
Right, and um, you you cover the um, the what you call the special case of war um, in chapter six in in your book, and you come out with a a, a nuanced um, um, approach to what it has, what IHL has achieved, and what it has failed to achieve. And you come to the conclusion that on balance, of course, it's not enough to have these norms and the progress has been uneven and there's been setbacks, but that by and large, the existence of these norms means that not every single war, not even every single battle, not every single soldier is systematically committing war crimes. Um, and that is um, a situation that is historically um, fairly recent. Is, am I summarizing um, correctly where you land on that issue in this chapter? I, I would say that that's accurate about my views before Syria. <laughs> I think a certain progress is being made, and um, I think a certain certain progress is still evident, actually, even today, in that there is a widespread expectation now that hospitals are not supposed to be attacked. Civilians who are not taking up arms are not supposed to be attacked. Uh, prisoners who are out of the fight should be treated humanely. And I would say until recently, say until 2010 or so, despite Vietnam, in some cases maybe because of Vietnam, um, there was a fairly widespread attention to a lot of these basic rules about who is off limits in the fighting. But because of Syria, where you had widespread civilian destruction and lots of atrocities and, and uh, not a whole lot of action taken because of those atrocities and violations of law. And now again in Ukraine, you see a tremendous disregard of both the human rights rules and the humanitarian law rules about not attacking civilians and protecting civilians and protecting infrastructure that's vital to the civilian population. In Syria, again in Ukraine, also now in Myanmar, where the military junta is blatantly attacking medical facilities, civilians who are in protest. In Ethiopia, in Tigray, you have starvation used as a weapon, you have mass rape, you have uh, um, really terrible things going on. So far, right now, the improvements that we saw in the 1990s with the trials out of Bosnia and with the trials after Rwanda and with the proliferation of other courts and with the some exercise of universal jurisdiction in the Pinochet case in the UK, et cetera, you, you had a lot of steps which sort of added up to renewed opposition to atrocities in war and in other situations of violence. 
And I would have to say, honestly, uh, uh, a lot of that sense of progress has been undermined since 2010 and now again in Ukraine in 2022, where there seems to be by important governments and at times other actors like the Islamic State group, it appears to be rather total disregard of the rules trying to protect persons in violent situations. So, so there you have the, the warring uh, realism and liberalism in me, and that I try to see the progress that is indeed occurring, but I can't take my eyes off the terrible situations that are produced by brutal power. Right. And let, let me bring this um, into what, what, what is also a theme in the book. Um, in, you have a chapter on organized international relations that describes the institutions that have been set up since the Second World War, the UN, the uh, ICC, regional courts, international financial organizations, and so on. Um, and my question is, and, and then in a subsequent chapter on state foreign policies, you recount how the aspiration, some, somewhat genuine for um, improving dignity and, and human rights met the realities of geopolitical rivalries between the East and the West and between the North and the South. So taking into account this, this world that was built after World War II, is that your impression that whatever was hopeful in the gradual building of a more respecting, more human rights respecting world was and remains intimately linked to these institutions built by the US and the West to a certain extent? And that if, if that world order, the international liberal world order um, is fraying, um, there really isn't much alternative that we can see. And therefore um, we should be fairly pessimistic about the direction of, of, of human rights in the world. Um, is, is, is that a, a fair description? of what is in the book and <clears throat> where your thinking is at? Almost. <laughs> Almost. I would say that if we look at world affairs from 1945 until now, um, there were actually two games going on. There was a brutal power game sometimes fought covertly, CIA, KGB, deep state. And at the same time, there was an effort to build a better world. It wasn't one or the other. It was both going on at the same time. And I think the American view was that first you had to contain communism, if not roll back communism. And um, after 9-11, 2001, you had to contain or defeat Islamic radicalism in order to get to a secure liberal world order. 
So there were there was a brutal power struggle, and there was a hope that eventually you could get to a liberal world order. It was neither one or the other. It was both at the same time. And I still think that that's, that's true about world affairs in general, although now I think all of these things have to be constantly reevaluated and reanalyzed, and there are new factors that come into play. Because now, for example, China is emerging as a major player. And so in the sort of hard power struggle, you now have to look not only at uh, uh, the United States versus Russia or democratic capitalism versus authoritarian socialism, Washington versus Moscow. Now you have to take into account Beijing and the so-called BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, middle range aspiring nations. But I still think you've got, particularly on the part of the West, particularly on the part of the United States, the same double game going on of um, power struggle, but hoping to eventually reinforce, reconstruct, a rules-based liberal international order featuring uh, personal rights, uh, some kind of regulated uh, capitalism. Increasingly, we'll have to have some rules about um, global warming. We're also gonna need some new rules about pandemics and how do we bl blend individual freedom with uh, protecting society as a whole. So I think really that, that game continues with variations. And what is at stake in Ukraine and other places is uh, the same sort of objective about not only uh, who's gonna be most powerful, but what are gonna be the rules of the game? What are gonna be the security rules in Europe? Uh, is, uh, are the laws of war going to be erased or reinforced? Um, so you have the power struggle combined with these other normative considerations about personal rights, uh, how to blend political rights with economic freedom, uh, how all of this is intersected by global warming, uh, and there will be other pandemics. And so we have to figure in public health and all of this. So that's how I'd, I'd revise it a little bit. And, and say we, we're gonna have these two, two games to continue at the same time um, and, and they are linked. It's like playing chess on two chess boards at the same time. One is the power game and the other is the, the, the rules of the world that you are trying to put in place based on certain values. Would you say that the would you say that the Helsinki Accord, in some ways, were the moment in history when these two chessboard merge for a brief moment? Yes, I would also say that you you can look at Europe as a very interesting laboratory in all of this. So, of course, Europe has been the the cockpit of uh, various fights. World War One, World War Two, center of the Cold War. For a long time, you had the British fighting the French, the French fighting the Germans. 
you know, the British fighting the Germans. And then uh, after 1945, you get the Council of Europe and you get eventually the European Union. And this looks like a, a, a situation where regionally one has established one game. It's a peaceful game. The prospect of France going to war against Germany is zero. The prospect of Britain going to war against France is zero. That's a historical change against a couple hundred years of history. And then to have these regional organizations with supranational courts, European Court of Human Rights, European Court of Justice, rule of law, uh, top-down rulemaking, it really looks like uh, Europe is the new nirvana, a lot of attention to human rights, elimination of the probability of international war. It all looks really good. <laughs> and then you get the Bosnian War and atrocities and really horrible things. Um, and then you get Brexit and the British pull out of the European Union. And then you get Ukraine, where you get a return to classic international armed conflict with great destruction right in the center of Europe. And that, that, that really promising bubble bursts about how Europe is going to transcend the difficulties of the state system and really emphasize uh, democratic capitalism and human rights and social progress and do away with war. And that's one of the reasons that the Ukraine situation is so traumatic in Europe and why Germany is changing its foreign policy and beginning to seriously militarize for better or worse. Yes, there was Bosnia and the Balkans, but you know that's kind of a sideshow from the standpoint of the, the major European states. So all of this uh, progressive development in favor of human rights, democratic capitalism, stability, absence of international war, now is frontally attacked by number one, Brexit, and number two, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So even that promising development in Europe, which is the one part of world affairs that looks like it's really um, generally interested in human rights and other progressive developments, you get international courts enforcing human rights and states agreeing to this. Right. Uh, things change. <laughs> yeah, and that's an important point uh, because in your reservation with uh, 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 full-throated uh, realist um, view of the of international relations. One thing that you point out in the book is that um, yes, sovereign states are interested in preserving their sovereignty, but in the case of Europe and maybe some other places, more limited, sometimes they see their national interest as giving up a little bit of sovereignty for the benefits of a larger um, supranational uh, framework. I want to talk about other things that are in, the, in, in your book, in, including uh, what you mentioned uh, on regulated capitalism, but is last word on this. Do you think that the Ukraine crisis and the, the 
rekindling of the conflict between Russia and Western Europe is rolling back this this process and we are going back to a, a process where sovereignty is supreme or as President Biden puts forward, we are on the opposite in a new age where it's two blocks to democracies versus the autocracies. I think the, the war in Ukraine is perhaps a turning point in world affairs, the way 1914 was a turning point, the way 1919 was an attempted turning point. I think, I think 2022 with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a turning point in which way it turns is not yet clear. And, and, but I think it's terribly, terribly important. And uh, I think we should have another discussion on this in six months and see, uh, see where we are then. Right. Um, so I, I want to turn to uh, uh, something that uh, is uh, interesting in the book. Uh, you have a chapter on what you call the business world. Um, and you also, in other parts of the book, mention a couple of times that the social economic dimension of human rights was not the result of a compromise between the West and the communist bloc, but was really a reflection of the social democratic um, aspirations within the, the Western world. And that to a certain extent, I'm reading between the lines now, the recent decades have produced a kind of unregulated capitalism. Um, you talk about um, malfeasance of cooperation. You talk about the initiatives to hold businesses accountable or set up standards for business corporations like the Global Compact and, and so on. But you do not seem to be very convinced that they're effective. And you point to something that I found was quite essential, which is that one major impediment to regulating uh, business and capitalism um, is not so much um, uh, sort of a concerted effort by corporations or multinational corporations to resist, but simply that businesses operate on an international level, but politicians respond okay. to national and domestic um, uh, considerations in which, of course, the economic interest of these national businesses are much more important than um, any other consideration. Um, what are, in your, your view, the, um, the barriers to um, better regulating the economic system? And, and do you believe that this is, this is necessary? I think this is a very important subject. Um, the, the business world is very powerful. I tried to show in the book that certain corporations um, have an economic value that's as large as 
some countries. Um, they are extremely powerful. They are extremely important. And my liberal side would say that if you can draw them into the, the belief, philosophy, orientation of social responsibility, they can be a very powerful force. And sometimes they are. On the other hand, uh, they can do a lot of damage. And, and whether you talk about certain company, companies and the opioid plague, the opioid addiction and all of that, and the Sackler family, and, and uh, you have other companies that have done terrible things. Uh, I'm impressed by the two things, the, the dy dynamism of capitalism compared to how socialism has worked in various places. You have the dynamism of capitalism, but you have the need for serious regulation uh, because you have a lot of bad apples in the barrel. You have a lot of potential to do great damage to people. Uh, what, I, what I would say beyond that in general is, you know, the neoliberalism of Reagan and Thatcher looks really dated now. That looks really anachronistic. The Milton Friedman view of, of shareholder capitalism, that the role of business is to make money for the shareholders, end of story. That doesn't seem to be the prevailing ethic now. And this is confirmed once again by Ukraine, where there is a demand that businesses take a stand against aggression and against uh, war crimes and not that business should not sit on the sidelines. And if they want to keep doing business with Russia, they ought to be punished by the consumer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that is not the Reagan-Thatcher view of a political economy. That's not the Milton Friedman view. So you, you do have a, a sort of big change here about what we expect out of the for-profit sector. And when it comes to uh, gender equality, when it comes to racial equality, when it comes to opposing aggression, when it comes to opposing war crimes, uh, when it comes to lots of important things, uh, global warming, I would say the drift of things is toward business social responsibility, including attention to human rights. That's why I say, again, you got to constantly reanalyze things and see where we are and see where trends are heading. The whole question of human rights and business is terribly important. There has been, I think, a big change, at least in the West, where um, there is a big push to replace shareholder capitalism with stakeholder capitalism and to, to uh, do more about business social responsibility. And I think there are many business executives who buy into this, uh, maybe because their own workers force them into it, you know, uh, but that watching the for-profit sector in relation to human rights and humanitarian law and global warming and fossil fuels and all of that, uh, the game is different now than it was 20 years ago. The game is different. There's maybe this, you know, we're, we, we've got plenty of bad apples out there, but uh, I would say the trends lead me to be a little bit encouraging as to what we can expect. Um, I would certainly say not the World Economic Forum. I, I'm, a, I'm a critic of the World Economic Forum, but the Global Compact 
what John Ruggie, we talk about individuals in the context, what John Ruggie and the Secretaries General at the UN were able to achieve with a global compact. It's not a panacea, but I would say, one, it's a push in the right direction, and two, individuals can make some difference, as John Ruggie did, as Kofi Annan did, is a very good example of chipping away at a problem and, and trying to take a few steps in the right direction. Business and human rights, very important. You talk about pushing things in the right direction. Um, there's one chapter in your book that we haven't talked about, um, which is the private, private nonprofit actors, uh, where you talk about international and, and, and non-international human rights, NGOs. Um, and I must say, I, I really liked your, your uh, starting points, uh, which is something I've often told myself, and I've even found sometimes solace in thinking this, which is that neither Amnesty International nor Human Rights Watch have sovereign or armed and yet they're very influential. And, um, and your question is, how can that be? What explains that organizations that you know, really shouldn't matter in international relations um, uh, do in fact matter? And we can see that perhaps um, most clearly uh, when we look at the efforts that governments uh, or, or bad actors put in trying to suppress and prevent uh, the work of, of, of these organizations. I think you advance one element um, to explain this, um, which is that they have a function of putting facts, putting um, uh, evidence-based information in that international relation um, ecosystem, um, something that states don't necessarily uh, have to do because they can pursue their interest uh, in, in any way um, uh, they want. Um, and, um, and of course, this is not covered in, in the book. And I, I think this is very true. Uh, you have to see the work of international human rights organizations as part of an ecosystem. They do not bring change on, on, on their own. Um, and, and there is this relation between the media and diplomats and, and, and this domestic organization, domestic activists, international organizations. Um, but I guess they are two big questions. One is, um, there is a lot of talk about living in a post-truth world and a lot of soul searching in human rights organization about the fact that putting the truth out is not enough. That does not product the change that we want. And the populists in a way have, are, are winning. And I, I think I have reservation with this argument. I think it's not so much a, a, a disagreement about whether um, someone has the truth. It's a disagreement about the fact that you, about the methods of uh, concluding that something is, um, is, is, is true or not. Um, if uh, you take the position that 
no methodology whatsoever is needed to come to an opinion about something, well, then it's very hard to, to engage. So one, one question is, if the role of human rights organization and the reason for their influence was that they were able to put some evidence-based information in the system, but that it doesn't matter or it matters less now, what's, what is the future of, the, of these organizations? And a, and a second big question, um, which organizations think a lot about is this power imbalance between Northern organization and Southern organization. And in the book, you are fairly um, forceful about why it will be very difficult to reverse this dynamic. Essentially that there are very few spaces in the global South where you have the political space where indigenous organization can secure um, their own financing and some level of legal security. That means they won't be shut down from uh, one day to the next by, uh, by, by the government. Um, is, that an, is that accurate and, and what is your um, response to these to these two big issues? Yes, I think that that is accurate about uh, the points I'm trying to get across. I think the human rights NGOs are very important. Um, I think they have to be very very careful with uh, what they claim, the facts that they assert. If they have develop a reputation for playing fast and loose with the facts or being um, their, their assertions being ideological or politicized, however you want to describe it, uh, that's, that's very deadly to them. Um, they can be influential, which is precisely why a number of governments restrict them and shut them down or try to shut them down. Unfortunately, some democracies, uh, India, Israel, um, have made it difficult for some of these groups to move around and report and publicize their reports. Um, but, but governments, as well as other powerful actors, they don't like to be embarrassed. They don't like to be uh, shown to be lying. Uh, Russia has shut down Memorial, the, the well-known uh, human rights historical and advocacy group uh, in Russia. Uh, um, autocratic regimes like Putin's can't, can't, don't want to really tolerate those types of uh, critical reports. So the groups can be important. They can be influential, not just in telling the truth or speaking truth to power, but also in lobbying finding effective ways to advocate. It's not only collecting facts and writing up a report, it's also identifying friends and allies and uh, uh, working in coalitions to try to get, get things done. And, and some of the groups are, are very good at this uh, historically. It is a problem in the global South, not only because of lack of political space to do this in uh, places like uh, Myanmar, you know, where you have the very brutal uh, military junta that uh, 
from the start doesn't want to allow this kind of political freedom. Um, but also because of lack of funding, you know, a lot of a lot of the Western base um, human rights NGOs rely on Western base foundations for their funding, you know, Ford Foundation or Gates Foundation or whatever. And you don't have so many of these funding sources in the global south and many of the human rights groups in the global south uh, not only have a restricted political space, but they also have lack of resources. Uh, lack of training, lack of uh, computers, uh, lack of everything. So it's a, a persistent problem. There is, on human rights and humanitarian affairs, a big push for so-called localization and trying to guard against a kind of neo-imperialism by the more wealthy Northwest. So there is some attention to the problem, north-south gap, lack of resources in the south um, for both human rights and humanitarian affairs. So there's awareness of the problem, there's nibbling away at the problem, uh, but of course that, that north-south gap remains. Right. I, I want to turn now to um, a broader topic, um, which is the process through which you went to write this book, because um, I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, you, the general editor of the Encyclopedia of Human Rights, which I think runs five volumes. Um, you have uh, written many volumes um, on human rights, uh, international relations, uh, the Red Cross, um, I think your Cambridge uh, Human Rights and International Relations is now in its fourth um, edition. Um, so what happens when you sit down to write a 150-page on, on um, human rights in international relations, in international politics? What was the process? And I there's a couple of uh, of uh, moments in the book, uh, maybe more than a couple, where you clearly acknowledge that you expect to be criticized for not um, stressing enough one issue or another. Um, and your last chapter about the major challenges to the to the system. Um, I think include gender, climate change, displacement and migration, all issues that um, I guess uh, some would, would uh, argue should have taken the center stage uh, and not, not these Western institutions uh, that have shown their limits and whose potential for progress uh, was maybe um, uh, better in the past. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the writing process of, of, of a book of, of this kind? Well, I think the first point I would make is that on this slim volume, as you accurately describe it, I approached it with a great deal of uh, pleasure um, because I was asked to cover the waterfront in a very succinct way. 
try to lay out the basics, try to cover the most important factors. And having, as you say, done other longer books and encyclopedias and things which purported to be more comprehensive and thorough, it was actually a pleasure to say, okay, here is a sort of human rights for dummies. Here is a kind of human rights in a nutshell. And I fully admit on each and every subject, much more could be said. I'm not pretending otherwise. But if I'm writing for university students, first year, third year, whatever, maybe I just want to uh, present the core of the subject and say, if you're really interested, you know, there's a lot more out there. But here's a starting point. Or if you have a university class of international relations that's going to run for a semester, and maybe the professor is going to spend a week or two on human rights, okay, here's an introduction. There's lots more that could be said, but here's one quick overview to stimulate you, to whet your appetite, to give you a starting point. I think that's fine. I think there, there's a place for that kind of treatment. And to segue into maybe what I'm doing now or what I'm doing next, I'm sort of doing the same thing uh, now with a new book on the International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, I've, I've done, I think, two books and some other work on the International Committee of the Red Cross. But I asked myself, uh, what's going on there today that's new and different? And of course, I'll have to rewrite the section on Ukraine. Um, but there, on every subject I take up, if I have six or eight chapters on the Contemporary International Committee of the Red Cross, on each and every subject I take up, there could be a book written or several books written on that topic. And I say, look, here's what I think. I know the situation is today on uh, economic assistance or medical assistance or what's going on in Afghanistan or uh, protection of detainees or um, development of new humanitarian law or whatever, whatever the subject is. All right, here's a snapshot and there's a lot more that could be said about it, but Knowing a little bit more is better while we wait for the big definitive treatment. Actually, it's a little bit different, maybe, on, the, on writing on the International Committee of the Red Cross, because for the, let's say I'm focusing on the last 30 years, and their archives are still closed. I can't, I can't go to Geneva and use their archives. They're embargoed for protecting ongoing diplomacy and so forth. And it's true that on state foreign policy or whatever, you know, there are also things that are embargoed and, and, and close to outsiders. But they're particularly on the ICRC. I know I'm not doing the definitive study because I don't have access to all the documents that I need. Historians will eventually. But in the meantime, I'm probably going to tell the reader something that the reader doesn't know. And that's a step forward. In a way, the human rights book is a little bit like that because I'm going to tell the reader something about human rights 
in global perspective, but on each and every subject, there's a lot more to be said from the legal point of view, the economic point of view, the sociological point of view, the philosophical point of view, the theoretical point of view. But anyway, I'm gonna try to take one step forward and maybe for the reader, it will be a, a value plus for them, something added for them. That's what I've done on this little human rights book designed for university students. Maybe one step forward in introduction, lots more to be said. And I'm sort of following the same approach to a new book on the ICRC saying, okay, I know this is not the last word, but I probably got some information here that other people don't have. I've been working on this for seven years. I've been doing lots of interviewing, been lot, doing lots of reading in open sources. And I think I have something to say that hasn't been said, but I'm not pretending this is the last word on the subject. Well, I'm gonna disagree with you uh, slightly because I think that the value of the book is really that you distill your experience and how much you've thought about the topic and you present information, but you also articulate clearly to the reader, what is your vantage point on a wide range of issue and the reader is free to agree or disagree, but it is a position that clearly comes from having thought about this issue an enormous lot and having written extensively about it. I think it's a book that is um, useful and would be useful not only to students, um, but to people who work in the human rights field, to investigators, to advocates, and certainly to uh, human rights activists and defenders um, uh, who are not based in the West and don't necessarily have access to the kind of information and, and, and overview of the global system that we may benefit from um, um, in, in, in the West. Um, so I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to do this interview. This was a, a great pleasure. Um, and I wish you um, success with the new book on the International Committee of the, of the Red Cross, hoping to have you again on the, on the channel uh, for this. Um, today's interview um, was uh, with David Forsyth for his uh, new book, um, Human Rights um, in International Politics. Um, and there are many other episodes on the Human Rights Channel. I invite you to check it. Um, I'm Nicholas Becklin, your host. See you next time. <laughs>